Hello, and welcome to a boosted episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today, we're reviewing part two of our Engine Powered Trilogy with 2000's Gone in 60 Seconds. We'll jump into our five-point inspection with Pretty Fast and Marvelous, The Bold and Not So Beautiful, Stereo, and Driver's Seat. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. No, 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 don't look at me, don't look at me. Look at the people next to you, look, look at the, uh, okay, just turn the wheel, turn, you know, pull, pull over, just, just pull over. But don't touch anything, you can't negotiate turns, you can't signal properly, you can't maintain speed, you can't parallel park, hell, you can't drive, honey, shit, I can't swim, I know I can't swim, so you know what I do? I keep my ass on dry land. Why did you even show up for this commercial? No, I'm good. Uh, hey amigo, let's take a walk, have a quick little chat. Uh, you gotta bring it down a notch, man. You're stressing the kids out. We just gotta get a few shots of them driving the go-karts around the track. <laughs> You're worried about their stress? Look at me, Brett, look at me. Alright, I, I got an idea. I, I'm gonna call Bernie real quick. In the meantime... Uh, hey, listen up, kiddos. Uh, Brett here is going to take you over uh, directing for a bit, and uh, I I'm going to call our producer. Uh, give him give him your full attention, please. Dude, wait. Dude. Well, hey, kids. Um, let's uh, let's take it from the top. And uh, when you're out there, I, I want you to remember three little things for me, okay? Control, vision, determination. These are the three fundamental components of the new generation of race car driver. Speed is a byproduct. Go fast. But remember, the car is you. You are the car. Okay, let's ride. Hey, buddy, nice job with the speech. Uh, thanks. Uh, what did Bernie have to say? Uh, well, he's dead, apparently. Uh, bled out in a parking lot. What the hell, dude? Why are you so nonchalant about this? We could be targets, too. Nah, man, that was last week. This week, let's go after Eleanor and review Gone in 60 Seconds. I'm out here. Memphis Reigns, a world-class car thief, is pulled out of retirement for one last job to save his brother from a lunatic carpenter. Reigns and his crew have 24 hours to boost 50 hard-to-find vehicles from the LA streets while avoiding rival boosters and evading detectives hellbent on catching them. Can they make it out to Pier 14 with all 50 rides by 8am? Or will Kip Reigns be buried in the carpenter's latest masterpiece? Travis, before we get into five-point inspection, I would love to know your quick diagnostic of 2000s Gone in 60 Seconds, because I did not realize this was a remake until I did a little research. <laughs> yeah, spoilers, I'll have some of that in my time capsule. Um, but first, before I really get to my thoughts on the movie, I have to ask you, Brett, the detective in this movie, uh, played by Delroy Lindau, uh -huh. I, think, I think it's Castlebeck. Uh, I believe you're right, yes. Is he a good cop because he knows that 
Memphis Reigns will go for Eleanor as the 50th car? Or is he a bad cop because he just decides, we'll let him steal the first 49? Like, if I'm a victim <laughs> of, of car theft and then I find out the LAPD knew that my car was going to get boosted, but they were just sitting on the GT500, I, I might be a little salty. I I have to say I think he's a good cop in that sense because I have to feel like... I feel like they don't have a lot of resources, so he has a very small team, so he has to pick the one he knows... Because he makes the comment that Memphis Reigns will save that one for last. So he's 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 positive that he's at least going to catch because they, they try to get the Mercedes first because of their special laser cut key. Yeah, I just thought it was entertaining that he calls out and I guess maybe he doesn't know that it's going to be 50 cars. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just the you know what? We'll let him get the first 49 to sit on the 50th. It would be cold comfort if I was car number 48. That, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Um, (laughs) as far as the movie itself, this was, this was action, you know, pre-Marvel to kind of spoil our, uh, our five point a little bit. This also Mm -hmm. felt, uh, like a lot of movies of the era, which was, we want to duplicate what Michael Bay does, but then we hire a director who can't quite accomplish what Michael Bay does because, Michael Bay's a pretty divisive director, but the man knows how to film action. I think if this movie lacks in anything, it's it's actually the action. Um, and and oddly enough, again, I was talking about kind of Michael Bay light. I, I feel like he started it off this this Nicolas Cage action uh, affair that that Cage did in the late '90s and early 2000s with The Rock, and then you had Con Air, which was kind of a watered down The Rock. The skill wasn't necessarily there which then leads to Gone in 60 Seconds, which I think is a little bit lesser than Con Air. So I'll say that. I, I don't like this nearly as much as other Nick Cage action movies of the era, The Rock, Con Air, probably even Face Off. But I'm interested to see what you think. Well, what about you? Uh, I mean, I by no means loved this movie, but I also enjoyed it. Like, it's one of those, I think it's one of those dumb if you're and again we'll get into this with the five point if you're a fan of the fast and furious franchise where it sits today i don't know how you can't enjoy gone in 60 seconds uh the car chase at the end i mean it's not the best car chase in the world but it's there i just think it's very like the characters i thought it was entertaining from beginning to end like there's definitely moments that i i maybe chuckled or laughed a little bit and i had a smile on my face like it's a ridiculous movie. It's absolutely ridiculous. But I was entertained from beginning to end with the movie. So I, you know, not to, again, we, we always kind of tip our hand for the end of the show with our final assessment. But I, I enjoyed the movie. I'm not going to say I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And before we jump into five points, I, I want to say the the end chase with Eleanor. I thought that was well-staged action. I enjoyed that scene. Mm-hmm. I don't think any other action piece in the movie comes anywhere close to that yeah i'm trying to think of what other action sets they have i mean they i guess when the the rival booster when they're chasing them through the the neighborhood and then he gets his car ripped in half by the tow truck i guess you could call that an action sequence yeah the the final battle in the what is it the junkyard is super super just watered down and just as generic as humanly can be Speaking of of Con Air, I don't know what it was about this era of action movie, but they always have to end. And I, I guess technically you can go back to Tango and Cash with the Rock Quarry, but they always have to go to some industrial plant with, you know, <laughs> a shocking 
lack of people around so that they can kind of just do their thing. I thought it was funny when I realized, okay, this movie is going to do that too at the end with like the, I don't exactly know what they were doing in that factory, but it sets up like some catwalks and, and you know, some steam. Yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. You got that steam. You can do that, that fun, like backlighting with everything to create some weird shadows. And like, it's a maze that they have to chase each other. And oh my, um, but, so I think we can go ahead and, and we'll go with, so this is the first time in, in chop shop history here that we, uh, we kind of actively combined two five point inspections. So it's pre fast and marvelous are the two. And we thought that they just went hand in hand that they were probably going to get talked about a lot in conjunction. So we can just kind of start there. Did you want to start with the Marvel side of it or did you want to start with the Fast and Furious side of it? Uh, I think the more obvious comparison is Fast and Furious. So I, I think I'll let you start it there. So this movie came out a year before the original The Fast and the Furious. This came out in 2000. The Fast and the Furious came out in 2001. Um, one interesting tidbit before we get into it. Did you know that Timothy Oliphant was originally approached to play Dominic Toretto? I did through research find that out and and God knows if we would be on Fast and Furious 10 had that casting happen. I love Timothy Oliphant, but I think Vin Diesel brings a very specific thing to Fast and Furious. Maybe it's the love of family. I don't know if Oliphant could have pulled that off. Well, also, I mean, Vin Diesel is the reason the franchise is around because he keeps wanting to do them. So I can't imagine Timothy Oliphant would be like, no, I love doing these Fast and Furious movies. These are these are my passion. Um but what I thought was interesting in watching, and I, it's, it's been a few years since I've seen the original The Fast and the Furious, but to me, what's crazy about Gone in 60 Seconds is if you were to tell me from Gone in 60 Seconds or The Fast and the Furious, which of those franchises was going to be where the Fast, like the ridiculousness of where the fa- uh, Fast and Furious franchise is today, I would have told you it was the Gone in 60 Seconds because I feel like, the way I remember it, the Fast and the Furious was actually pretty like a decent contained story. Like it wasn't ridiculous. It was it was um, street racers stealing st- DVD players off of semi trucks. Right. And even the end chase, like to get away, it's basically they try and outrun a train and the train hits one of them. Right. As opposed to Gun in 60 Seconds, where he has to take a 1960s GT Mustang and drive over a, a truck ramp to, to launch himself over a traffic jam. I'm just like, I'm like, oh, this is at some point when they decided to continue the Fast and Furious with two Fast, two Furious, they decided to go to Gone in 60 Seconds for the blueprint for where this franchise was going to go. Like, they didn't stick with the Fast and the Furious. They're like, no, 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 no. Gone in 60 Seconds was way more ridiculous and fun. Let's go. Let's do those movies instead. I mean, Brett, are you t- you're telling me that you find it ridiculous that Eleanor takes what looks like a 640 foot drop onto a bridge and then it's just like, <laughs> ah, it's a little scuffed up. You know, Kalitri might not take it because it's a little scuffed up. Oh, there's there's so much about. I also love that that's the one where like I'm not taking the Mustang here. I'm like, we've already seen several other vehicles come in damaged. There was the SUV that has literally bullet holes and blood in the back seat, but like, nah, that one's fine. Loaded up, baby. The, the Humvee, the Humvee with the snake in it, definitely has damage from where it just rode up against the rails. But again, those ones weren't an issue. But the GT, that's where we're drawing the line. 
Yeah, I don't think the movie earns this at all. I, I think if I had to explain it away, it's that Kalitri was was hell bent on fucking them no matter what, and so he used mm-hmm. the fiftieth car. But yeah, I the fact that Memphis is able to even drive pull that car in after that jump on the bridge, I'm just like, yeah. I, basically, they skip to like fast five levels of ridiculous by the end of this movie. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> there's And there's so many random weird things that happen in the movie where I'm just like, did they could they not figure out a way to get to point A to point B? Like, there's a rival booster that basically is resolved very quickly. Like, they tear up the car and then they're done. Like, that's like, oh, you win, Memphis. We're not coming back after you. There's the whole car that's stolen with coke or heroin in it that's just like, what? It's not even there? on the list. <laughs> It's not even on the list. Like, why didn't this come in? Like, it's like, there's all these, like, again, these little scenes that are just like, again, movie is extremely entertaining. But at the end of the day, I'm just like, it's so weird narratively. Like, these were the points that we had to hit in order to get from their boosting 50 cars to Memphis Rain driving the Mustang at the end of the movie. Yeah. And I, I don't know how much this, this kind of straddles the line of both Fast and Furious and Marvel, but they bring out a ridiculous level of acting talent in this movie and then don't really do anything with it. It's bizarre how many A-list actors are in this movie, Uh, especially, like you said, this is not Fast Five. This is not Iron Man 3 where we have to bring in more and more. This movie just starts with, hey, we're going to give you a cast of like, 15 actors you've heard of and even somebody mm-hmm. like timothy oliphant who wasn't really famous at this point is i mean when he's your your 14th build caster you've got a stacked roster of, of actors mm-hmm. well <laughs> and even i would say that so the uh the actor who plays um what is it Kalitri, what's his name uh christopher eccleston yeah he um i guess he's he's gone on is saying that like it was one of his worst roles he did a terrible job but i'm like i don't know if i necessarily agree with that just because i'm like you just overacted the thing like everybody else was like you were just you you brought the same energy as nicholas cage did to this role right i mean he's over the top but like i feel it perfectly fitting for this movie yeah I, not for one second did i think oh you know this would be good but eccleston you know ruined it no he knows the movie that he's in just the same as as nicholas cage and 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 uh you know delroy lindau everybody yeah they they play it perfect for what this movie is so it's i think that might be his nice way of saying it's a shitty movie to him mm-hmm. but yeah i had no problem with his performance very marvel level <laughs> villain it and and even to this extent like Again, we're talking about little things like again, Fast and Furious style, like family. I'm like the fact that Memphis Reigns goes to visit his mom in the diner, and I'm just like, this scene is so weird, it's just so that we can introduce Memphis to the detectives. Like, I never thought you, Randall, why were you doing here? Like, I I lost two hundred dollars to this bet. And I'm like, also, how long was he at that diner? Long enough for the cop to call the detectives and the detectives to get to the diner to catch him outside? I'm like, there's just so much like weird circumstance in this movie. This like, but again super entertaining from beginning to end entertaining i also really enjoy the fact that there was not some big tragedy or anything that led memphis reigns to to leave the life of of car theft his Mm -hmm. mom just asked him to so he's like okay no problem you're gonna get your brother killed 
Um, but if I could, as far as pre-Marvel, number one, I just miss the days where we had these kind of random one-off action pictures. Uh, pictures Again, I mentioned The Rock. I mentioned Con Air, this. Uh, if you want to stay in the Bay universe, something like Armageddon. I miss just these random action movies, but they're no more or they're no less realistic than a Marvel movie at this point. I mean, you look at the characters that Nicolas Cage played. I mean, even their names. You start with Stanley Goodspeed in The Rock, and that's kind of what introduces Nick Cage to action. And then he's Cameron Poe with the worst Southern accent in history in Con Air. Uh, he's Caster Troy in Face Off, and then, of course, Memphis Reigns here. Nicolas Cage was kind of a superhero before superhero movies were big. Like, you can say that he's a different character in each movie, but to me, he's kind of just Nick Cage every time. I mean, he was a superhero. He played um, Ghost Rider for two movies. Yeah, of course, after after this run that yeah. he had. And I guess part of that is he realizes, hey, they're not making Con Air anymore, so, you know, <laughs> I'm going to have to get into the Marvel machine, and he, he does it with Ghost Rider. Well, that was before MCU, too. That was just doing a Marvel movie. So I think we can give him at least a little bit more credit to your point. That is that is fair. Um, But yeah, it's just incredible to think that this kind of action movie, you know, could be a box office success because in in a few short years, yeah, it just becomes comic book fair. And a little bonus to this segment. Did you also feel like this was kind of a, a little bit of a setup for Ocean's Eleven, too? I mean, I know Ocean's Eleven was a remake, but it felt like this movie was a prelude to Ocean's Eleven down to the fact that they've got Scott Kahn in both. Uh, I absolutely did. Like, watching it, I was like, you know, we don't want to say it was the blueprint because there's plenty of stuff that came before this, but I'm like, I could see where this movie, either it influenced or it was basically at the beginning of an era of, like, where they were going to start doing that because you started seeing a bunch of the car movies coming out with the Fast and the Furious, Ocean's Eleven coming out, you know, shortly after that where... Um, it was kind of between cars and like these weird ensemble movies. It seemed like it kind of was the spearhead of a small era of kind of that kind of stuff coming in. Yeah. And I almost feel like to go back to our 48 hours review and, and maybe cause we talked right before podcast, it seems like you're a little more positive on the movie than I am. Uh, if that's the case, it's for me, it's because like 48 hours, this set so many blueprints up, you know, the, the heist movies, Ocean's Eleven, uh, to an extent, the Marvel movies, and most definitely the Fast franchise. It just feels like this was the launching point for a lot of other ideas that that piggybacked off of this. And mm-hmm. I think maybe I appreciate what comes after a little bit more. I mean, even to this point, this was in 2000. What year was the Italian Job remake? Like, I could see where, like, again, it starts this... These I think it was 2003, heist. 2003 or 2004 yeah. for sure. So again, yeah, it is this, you know, it kind of started all these car heist, you know, you know, car or heist or car, car heist movies came off of the, you know, the back of Gone in 60 Seconds. Yeah. And this is the last thing I'll say. I just I can imagine, you know, because we've seen the player, I can imagine a, a group of executives around a table being like, hey, Gone in 60 Seconds took off. You know, what can we do to capitalize on the success? And then, yeah, that led to a green light for a lot of scripts. Mm-hmm. So next up, uh, we won't touch on it for too long, but I just wanted to go into the bold, but the not so beautiful. Um, I did say that I enjoyed this movie, but 
to me, the one thing that stuck out like an absolute sore thumb, and I do not think aged well, was the weird sepia like coloration um, that the director took with this movie. Like it's this weird filter, and he the same director did Swordfish, and I think even if again remembering the original The Fast and the Furious, I feel like there was also this kind of like very like yellowy tint to that movie. And again, I don't know if this was just trying to somehow copy Michael Bay or people kind of copying Gone in 60 Seconds because of its success, but to me, the coloration of this movie is just so off. And not like, it's not realistic, and I don't want to say it's it's comic booky, but it's also just kind of like surreal, but at the same time, not surreal. Like, it's just this weird sepia yellow tone, and I have no idea artistically why it was used because it just doesn't, to me, it doesn't fit the movie very well. I agree. And it's interesting you say that. Did you look at who the cinematographer was? I did not. I don't know him by name, but what stood out to me, because I thought the same thing watching the movie and the cinematographer, uh, some of his later work, like in the next few years, he does. Uh, he works with Tony Scott a few times on Man on Fire uh, and Deja mm. Vu. Um, OK. And I recall it. I love Man on Fire, you know, spoilers if we ever review it. The one divisive thing I always thought is, yeah, the weird saturation of colors in that movie. Um, and Deja Vu just kind of is that on steroids. So it seems like maybe that was more of a cinematographer choice or he just enjoyed that experience so much on Gone in 60 Seconds that he amped it up later. But once I saw who the cinematographer was, I was like, ah, OK, that that's kind of his thing a little bit. Yeah, and to that point, still, I don't think it's good. <laughs> like, it might be your thing, but, like, maybe try something else. I don't know. If that's... I can't imagine people were like, you know what, we want to do this movie. We're going to go pick that cinematographer because that's the look we're looking for in this movie. Because I just... I don't think the the coloring of this movie is, is benefiting, and it does not age well. It's, it's really, like, again, dram it's very dramatic, and the movie's not dramatic at all. <laughs> So it just doesn't quite fit. Yeah, if, if I'm paying that much attention to the color colorization and, and the way you're shooting stuff, it better be because I'm in love with it. I'm an, I love the mood that it's setting. You talked about it last week with Drive, the lighting of that movie. Everything with that tonally fit the movie and it accented the movie where it needed to. Whereas this one, I'm just like, wait, why is this shot so green? Yeah. You know? So well, and it's like it's interesting because at the beginning of the movie, it wasn't a problem for me when the opening sequence, which before I, I get too far into this, why did they start with the cheesy, shitty 60 <laughs> second timer? I'm like the the opening with flower with Moby is fantastic. That's the open. Like, I don't understand the weird CGI timer like did not need like to me. And again, tonal shift, the weird, shitty 60 second timer was not. <laughs> the same as when it rolls into flower with like the panning through all of like the old racing memorabilia and stuff like that from the reigns family but the sepia coloring on that and even when we see memphis rain with the go-karts i'm like okay because it's supposed to feel like kind of a, a country vibe i'm like okay it makes a little bit of sense here but it's still it winds up translating to the whole movie i just i don't think it is i think the moment it sticks at the most is the diner. The diner is the, I think, the most egregious with just really weird, wacky colors when he's meeting his mom. Like, that's the one that sticks out in my mind the most, where it's just like, what is going on with the color palette in this scene? 
Yeah, and just to touch on what you said about the opening, is that not the most two thousand year two thousand <laughs> open ever? Like this movie exists in a weird era where it was the nineties on steroids because you're going into two thousand, but it's pre nine eleven, so everything is just maximum ridiculous. And did you notice also when they're going through the race memorabilia? Uh, this was clearly before people were super skilled with Photoshop. <laughs> Some of the <laughs> images of young Nick Cage and young Giovanni Ribisi kind of pasted together. I'm like, did you just cut out a picture of Nicolas Cage and tape it onto a, a real childhood photo of someone's and then just be like, hey, put enough sepia tone on it and people won't notice. <laughs> I noticed, Brett. Maybe it's maybe it's the HD TVs these days. But yeah, I was like, God, that is uh, we've come a long way with Photoshop, because I feel like, Brett, if I gave you 15 minutes, you could whip up something better looking than that. <laughs> probably, probably. Um, and then the last thing I'll touch on, it has absolutely nothing to do with the colorization. But the other thing I did not think that aged well, and this is going to be a couple movies of this genre or not genre, but this time period, like the score. We'll talk about the soundtrack in a minute, but the actual score I thought was dog shit. <laughs> like with the weird techno. As I'm like, this is all like this. Again, you're talking about this is so 2000 and it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, we can't have like super famous licensed music throughout the movie. We have to have a score. So, yeah, let's just kind of uh, simulate what we think Moby and, you know, a couple of other techno groups of the era would do. It's so bad. <laughs> I will <laughs> say, like, though, non non soundtrack related. The only score part I did like is that little tune that they give for Eleanor. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just kind of the Eleanor's theme, I'll call it. When that comes on, it does a good job of conveying uh, what the dialogue does too. you know, this is this is Memphis's unicorn. Yep. So. With that, I think we have to talk about stereo. And this is my love letter. I think it's going to be our love letter to the soundtrack of this movie. Because I just, we talk about, I think, you know, the early 2000s, like the, you know, mid, early, mid 2010s, whatever you want to say. It's like my favorite genre of, of movies. And I just feel like that genre is also known for just banging soundtracks like there was so much time and effort put into what like you could have a super shitty movie that i still would have looked up the soundtrack because they would have just fantastic like block party would be on it or like something like that and it's like this this movie has such a fantastic soundtrack uh i don't know if you have any thoughts on it i have the soundtrack list here because i want to list off some of my favorites um but i mean what was your thought of the soundtrack of this movie I'm going to compliment it just through a, a very brief story. So this movie came out in 2000. Uh, I was in high school. I was not old enough to drive. Um, so a friend of mine would pick me up for school every morning shortly after this movie came out, uh, probably like 2001. And we, I take no pride in saying this, thank God no one got hurt. But his parents let him drive their Acura Um Actually, I think your mom even had the same Acura at one point. <laughs> might, might have, yeah. Yeah, like the TL. Um, he would pick me up and we would, I lived kind of out in the country, and we would put on Flower by Moby, and there was like a one-lane road that was probably a good mile long. And every morning 
we would listen to Flower by Moby and take that Acura up over 100 miles an hour because <laughs> it just... You can't put that song on when you're in a car. You can't drive slow. You, you might not drive recklessly, mm. but you can't drive slow. Uh, so, yeah, the, the soundtrack clearly captured the hearts and minds of at least two uh, country kids in the early 2000s. Absolutely. I, it's just like Flower by Moby again, that opening sequence. So, so good. So good. Uh, the Chemical Brothers are on here. Uh, Ice Cube is on here. Uh, Apollo 440, Can't Stop the Rock. When it came on, I was like, oh, I, 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 I love this song. I told you before, uh, Lowrider, like when Nick Cage does the Lowrider hands and says, okay, let's ride. I do that all the time. Like I constantly quote that part of the movie and very few people actually understand what I'm doing. But uh, Folsom Blues by Johnny Cash. I mean, there's just, there's so, and not only that, just the diversity, even Better Days by Citizen King, which is like a, a nine, like hard 90s song. I'm like, there's just so much great music in this. It just brings me back to the days where you actually made like a CD soundtrack, even when you made your own mix CD soundtrack to put in your car. Like that's what this feels like. And it feels very appropriate with a car about movies to have such a diverse range. Like it's just, again, fantastic. And kind of to your point, I, they don't make soundtracks like this anymore. I think it coincides with, you know, the death of purchased music. You know, at, at a certain point, it probably wasn't worth a studio, uh, worth the money to a studio to, you know, have all these licensed songs uh, when people aren't buying CDs anymore. Because, uh, yeah, well, in this era, that was half the fun of watching a movie. You watch it and then you go to like Sam Goody or FYE or something and then grab the soundtrack. And, and obviously that died out somewhere in the, the mid 2000s. Well, I think it goes back to what you were originally saying, too, with the pre-Marvel, like all of our action movies these days are Marvel movies and Fast and Furious, like, and they all have scores and they have like, tra like traditional scores and like, they don't try and put in a bunch of like music and stuff like that. And I think that again, that's another symptom of the fact that we don't have these types of action movies anymore is you don't get those. Let's build a soundtrack for this movie because we already have Thor's theme and all, you know, these, these epic scores by you know basically either Hans Zimmer or um you know Hans Zimmer wannabes you know yeah and I, I think like the only time you're really getting licensed music in these Marvel movies anymore is like in Captain Marvel it's a period piece so let's let's drop in some Nirvana um mm -hmm. but that's the only time is when it's part of the gimmick <laughs> and hey we have to just pound it in your head this is the 90s yep so I mean, I will definitely be listening to the soundtrack on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever the fuck it is uh, very soon. Because like I said, I <laughs> it is a fantastic soundtrack. Yeah, and oddly enough, no Master P on the soundtrack, even though he is an actor in the movie. Yeah, but there is DMX. <laughs> Was so. it, is it Up In Here? Is that the song? Party uh, Up In Here, yeah, yeah so... Yeah, I just I, it makes me smile. I love the soundtrack so much. It, it's it is it's a lost art. I feel like, uh, especially when you have a playlist where you can make, you know, 150 songs, 200 like you just as many songs as you want. Like there was there was an art to a playlist, and I think a lot of it came from movies like this, where like you had a set number of of songs and stuff like that. So I don't know, a little too nostalgic. Well, we'll round that out, and I think 
what I think will be the the bulk of our our five point inspection here, driver seat, because we talked about it a little bit, alluded to it, but I want to talk about the talent in this movie because <laughs> it is insane. You have Nicolas Cage, Angelina Jolie, and um, Robert Duvall. Okay, and I love Robert Duvall in this movie. Like Otto is fantastic. I love him especially, and and I. There's no way this was a coincidence. They are trading on the the cult following that Days of Thunder has because he is playing <laughs> Harry Hogg, which is his character in Days of Thunder. <laughs> this is basically what what did Harry Hogg do a decade later after the events of Days of Thunder? He he helps Memphis Reigns. Um, you have Giovanni uh, Rabisi uh scott can you talked about like there's just uh, delroy lindo uh angelina jolie fresh off an oscar yeah uh she mcbride which is was that a 90s thing because we also talked about that with the gothica review like what the fuck was halle berry doing that is angelina jolie like they just like we wrote this role for you will you please do she's like yeah sure why not like did she read the script (laughs) which at least with gothica you know it's not a good movie we we've covered it but at least Halle Berry is on screen for like 85% of the movie. Angelina mm-hmm. Jolie at times just pops up and I'm like, oh yeah, she's in this movie. I forgot. <laughs> uh, so it's weird. Yeah, you're kind of at the height of your power off of an Oscar and then you're kind of just Memphis Reigns' girlfriend who gets a few scenes to kind of be sexy. Yeah. Uh, Chi McBride, Vinnie Jones. Oh, God, you can never get enough Vinnie Jones in a Will movie. Will Patton. I love Will Patton. Uh, Timothy Oliphant, like, it is just, again, it is insane. It's insane the level of talent that was in this movie. And I wonder before, if... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was like, just before you had, like, again, Marvel movies where you had, like, an end game where you had, like, this is like, no, they just were able to cast all of these people. And I wonder, I think that was, you know, I don't know what anybody get paid for this movie, but that feels like that was a also a staple of the Jerry Bruckheimer era, you know, the producer of this movie, because mm-hmm. you got something like Armageddon, um a couple years before with just a stacked cast, you know, when you've got Owen Wilson as your, your 12th actor. So I don't know what it was about Bruckheimer productions, but he was able to attract the talent, even if the talent was not utilized. Yep. Um, but the, to, to dive into some of the performances in this movie, I don't know if this movie, this movie would be drastically different if Nicholas Cage was not playing Memphis Reigns. Like, there is just a certain crazy that Nick Cage brings to a role that like, again, it, you talked about being a super like he's a comic book character. Like he's a world class uh, car thief. And then he also is like this badass who's willing to go after the, you know, the the big baddie with Raymond uh, Kalidri and just fight him. Like he's he wants to get have a fist fight with him and breaks his when he's breaking his wood chair like oh yeah I forgot you have a thing for wood don't you like he's using the wood chair to like cl- like grab his not like the knife out of Kalitri's hand like like he's had some kind of like actual like hand to hand combat training you're like this makes no sense whatsoever again even just just Nicholas Cage's performances it's so over the, I mean it's so Nicholas Cage but it's so over the top for I feel like what this character is supposed to be like he's supposed to be like this cool suave guy to me and like he's not he's, he's he's honestly a little unhinged as far as I'm concerned 
Yeah, I really enjoyed in the intro when you you channeled your your inner Nicolas Cage and talking about the you know the three important things for a race driver. Just the way he delivers that scene, like there's no other actor in the. You could say they might do it better, they might do it worse, but nobody's gonna do it like that. <laughs> And yeah. it just the delivery of like uh, you mentioned it earlier, the, you know, let's ride. I love to hit people with the uh, low rider, Donnie, Donnie, <laughs> low rider, just that Nick Cage cadence. It's up there with Christopher Walken as far as only he could deliver it that way. Yes. I even love that scene because it's a subtle scene where you can see all of the old crew like they know exactly what's going on with Lowrider and all of Kip's crew are like, what the like, what is going on here? Like, why are we playing this? I'm like, oh, it's a very subtle way to show just the two generations of of boosters right now beyond like the previous scene. We're like, no, we've got technology for that here. You can put this fake fingerprint on, which never comes back. Right. She never uses the fake fingerprint that he did. Uh, TJ Cross puts on his finger, right? It's just like, oh no, we have technology. Like this will come in handy somehow. Yeah, this is a quick throwaway line to show, hey, we're new school, and and that's that's all it functions as. But as cliche as it was, I did enjoy the the group dynamics. I know that's a previous trilogy we did of yeah, old school versus new school, uh, even down to like the acting talent. You know, at the time, I think people forget Giovanni Ribisi was like the it guy in Hollywood as far as young actors they were trying to push. So I, I did like, even though Kip is a character, if it's my brother, hey, you just threw a brick through a window at a Porsche dealership, stole the Porsche, and then decide to get in a street race, and then you bring down your whole fucking crew for that? Eh, I might just leave you in the car crusher. <laughs> well, so, and again, just to go back to the movie, like, well, I don't think it gets enough credit for being like a good like, they established that, and you think he's just a reckless. Maybe he's reckless, right? But in the following scene, when Memphis goes to see him in his house and he's making him dinner, they establish that no, he's just kind of a fuck up when he's making the the breakfast with the beer and then spills the salt all over the place. Like it's like they do a good job of, of establishing like no, Kip might be wanting to follow in Memphis's his footsteps, but like Kip Kip is a fuck up, you know, at the end of the day, and like this was destined to happen because. Kip does not have the same skill set or charisma as his brother. Yeah, and I, as silly as this movie is, I wish they would have done a little bit more about, you know, Memphis Reigns gives up his life and leaves town only for Rabisi to just do it anyway. Like, I thought that was an interesting dynamic that the movie could have just added a little more, uh, you know, uh, just a, a little more seasoning of drama in the movie. I, I thought that was a squandered opportunity. Well, yeah, especially when you find out the big reveal because, you know, Kip obviously has a, a chip on his shoulder because he thinks Memphis just abandoned him and his friends and, like, what kind of a, you know, what kind of a real model actually is is Memphis. And then Atlee basically says, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. He left because your mom asked him. Like, that's a much more powerful scene than was portrayed in the movie. Like, that should have been way bigger. And, like, yes, it leads up to Kip coming and saving his brother. But, again, that should have been... Because even to that point, I don't think he ever tells Sway why he left, right? It's never one of those, like, I had to leave for my brother. Like, there's a lot of the, <laughs> again, Fast and Furious, the family aspect of this that just doesn't kind of get explored. That I know it's two hours, and we don't like movies going over, like, that two-hour mark, but I'm like, another 15 minutes would have made this movie a lot more compelling if that 15 minutes was dedicated to... Memphis and Kip's relationship and Memphis 
basically coming clean as to why he had to leave, you know, and that it was about taking care of the people he cared about. And I think you could still even keep it under two hours. I think there's enough in this movie because it doesn't feel like there's enough content for a two hour movie. So I feel like you could cut out some fluff and then try to just make it a touch more serious. And like you said, when Kip finds out why Memphis really left, that should have been a big deal. But it just feels like expository dialogue just to get it out of the way. What it feels like is that that one might have been in a version of this movie and they cut that out to put in the rival booster like that was in there like we don't have enough action and so the Kit Memphis relationship got cut so that they could throw in this weird random rival booster so that they could have the action scene of that car being ripped by the tow truck because the rival booster does not make a lot like is completely unnecessary you already have the con I mean you already have Memphis as having to do something for um for Raymond uh I can't why can't I Kalitri for Kalitri to help Kip, and he's also got the cops on his tail. Like, that's enough tension. You don't need to add this random third party that is resolved very quickly. Because after they chase them, and, like, they chase them and are immediately resolved through the tow truck ripping the car apart. Like, and that's it. They never, And I guess it's because the police arrest them, but, like, that's it. That's the resolution to that whole conflict is that, I guess, Memphis outsmarts them. And it's, again, but... It, that's Memphis and Kit. It's them teaming up on something. But we don't get the payoff of like, oh, they're actually like brothers and they're working through what happened and Memphis leaving. So it's very strange. Yeah. And if this were the Fast franchise, if if, if Fast didn't exist and we were just now on Gone in 60 Seconds 10, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the rival Jack or Master P in the in the sequel or the third movie, he would come back and now be a part of the team. But in this movie, mm -hmm. yeah, there's just no reason to put him there uh, other than, yeah, let's let's make an action scene, which really is not compelling at all on an action set piece standpoint. So, yeah, if you're going to cut anything to make room for the, the family dynamic, I think it would be Master P's character. Yep. And I don't even know if they tried to advertise this to show Matt like why master p was he supposed to be again a name to bring people into the movie I'm, I'm not sure i mean i'll go ahead and say it for you brett were they just thinking hey we can get an extra you know x amount of million by bringing in a black audience because master p's in the movie they have delroy what are you talking about yeah, maybe maybe the younger black demographic, because, I mean, also, Master P is a little bit of a punchline at this point. But circa this movie coming out and a few years before, he was the biggest name in rap. So I can see why yeah. they would try to shoehorn him in here. It's just that's why I I hate the way <laughs> movies are made now, because everything is so focused on what can we do with the initial box office? I like my movies to be a, a piece of art that ages. And when you throw this stuff in mm -hmm. here, you might have got a nice bump the first two weeks the movie was out but in the long run you've made a weaker movie right but to go back to pre-fast furious where i said it feels like fast and furious just decided that they wanted to be gone in 60 seconds what does too fast too furious do they bring in a rapper with ludicrous and jaw rules so they ja decide rules to double down on yeah oh yeah so they decide to double down yeah <laughs> Wait, then, hey, i thought he was in the second no was he I, think in the first? I think you're right yeah because he wants the he wants the threesome if he wins that's right yeah yeah but so again it's like wait a second let's not do the fast and furious let's do god in 60 seconds and call it the fast and the furious 
<laughs> Which is funny too. You you bring back uh, you mentioned it earlier. Memphis Reigns is a world class car thief, but then also he likes you know close quarter combat. Even in in the Fast franchise, in the first movie, they're just carjackers. Yeah, later on in the franchise, they at this point they're basically some combination of James Bond, Ethan Hunt, and. I don't know. Captain America. Yeah. Some kind of metahuman. Metahuman. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this movie is just like, no, we're going to just make Memphis Reigns the ultimate Mary Sue. Well, and in modern, I feel like like a model Marvel, there would be some throwaway line about his training or something like, no, he just knows hand to hand combat when when Kalitri goes to to beat the shit out of him. Like, no, all of a sudden he's just he's good at fighting, too. You know, I guess if you're going to carjack or, you know, jack cars, you have to be able to fight maybe i don't know sure but like we've said nick cage was kind of already a superhero you're you're not just watching this movie and he's memphis reigns he's also caster troy he's also cameron poe so it's just kind of built into your head you're like yeah of course i mean he was an ex-army ranger and uh you know he carries around two golden pistols and he steals cars (laughs) Uh um but I think if you don't have any other spotlights you want to do, I do want to say, I don't, whatever happened to Chi McBride? Like, there's talent in here where I'm like, I want to know where they are. And I don't, I'm hopefully, I'm not spoiling anything for Time Capsule. I also had to look up Vinnie Jones because I haven't seen him in a lot. And I think he took a break because his, his wife died of cancer. So, you know, to pull a, a Santana and make this a little morbid. But like, some of these people, I'm like, where are they today? Like, they weren't like they were they're good actors they shouldn't be out of work like they should at least have some side character in a marvel movie by now well chai mcbride let me just say i guess it was technically post this movie not by much but he was uh the principal on one of my all-time favorite tv shows boston public so he at least had some limelight as a leading man after this movie but yeah i think the unfortunate thing is the the domination of, of Marvel and, and Star Wars and stuff like that, most of these actors are relegated to TV. Like, I, I haven't even looked mm-hmm. up Chai McBride, but I guarantee you if I did, he's probably been on, like, 10 different TV shows in the last decade. Um, Let's see if you're right. Uh, yep, Smallwood is what just entered post-production. Uh, this is Us. He's a TV appearance uh puppy dog pals tv series short he was in a couple episodes of that oh hawaii Fi- so actually he <laughs> he had a reunion with scott can on hawaii 5 <laughs> <laughs> okay all right so yeah i guess yeah they just they're doing more tv oh he was a i mean speak of fucking marvel uh he was the voice of nick fury and some of the avengers assembled cartoons See, there you go. There's no escaping the Marvel machine. Everybody's got to cash no. those checks at some point. Oh, man. Now I just got to find out if Scott can. I mean, it's, oh, has he been can, in Marvel yet? Uh, Brad, I, I try to lay off you on the mispronunciations. It's James Kahn's kid. Therefore, it's Scott Kahn. What did I say? Can. The Can Film Festival. Uh, I think I said Kahn. Kahn! No, he doesn't look like he's done anything Marvel-related yet. He'll have his day. He'll have his day. But if you don't have anything else to bring up with our with uh, the driver's seat, I think we can do some tag and title. Let's do it.
All right. So Travis, this week is like no, is like every other week, no other week, every, eh. let's get into it. I'm going to give you three taglines, Travis. One is a tagline to this movie. One is a tagline to a movie I found adjacent. And one is a tagline I created myself. What I need you to do is tell me what was the, or what was a tagline for 2000 Scott in 60 seconds. Are you ready? Let's ride. Uh, that was actually the tagline. All right, you already got it. Wait, are you serious? It's not. It's not. Oh. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here you go. If you have what it takes, you can have it all. Ice cold, hot wired, or they're already gone. I, I'm going to say ice cold, hot wired. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be the main tagline of the movie. You're just picking one official, correct? This might not one necessarily be on the poster. It's yeah, it's one of their official taglines. I'll give it had three taglines. I'll give you the other two after after you guess. I'm gonna say ice cold hot wired is the one of the taglines for this movie. Okay. Um if you have what it takes, you can have it all. Is that what you said? Uh-huh. I'm gonna say that's another movie because that sounds familiar to me, but I cannot quite place it and then the third one give it to me again i believe this is the one you made up but let me just confirm they're already gone i'm gonna say that's yours i'm not i'm not confident on one and three but i i think i got the official tagline all right you are 100 percent correct do you want to take a stab at the adjacent movie for the for the bonus point you can have it all if you have what it takes you can have it all can i ask for one hint no okay is it the italian job no it's not but if i gave you a hint i would have to throw out one of five thousand quotes we know from this it is from 2001's the fast and the furious (laughs) <laughs> i was gonna say travis i never narked on nobody <laughs> um <laughs> you can have any beer you want as long as it's a corona uh nobody likes the tuna like i wasn't gonna be able to give you a hint with the a straight buster face kept me out of coughs the cuffs <laughs> yo dom why's the buster here when are we gonna do the fast movies at least th- one of them three of them i have no idea if all of them who knows um, as, long, as long as tokyo drift is one of the th- Three that we do absolutely anytime you want, Brett. Listen, I have a, har- a a a running argument with many of our other Fast and Furious fans out there that there are people that want to argue that Tokyo Drift is the worst of the franchise, and I disagree. Oh, I think shit. Too Fast, Too Fast, Too Furious is the worst of the fr- like. It is the wor- I cannot believe they made another movie and realize it was that bad because the third movie they had to completely recast everything because it was so bad. Too Fast, Too Furious is the worst Fast and Furious movie. You heard it here. I'm putting the Vince McMahon guarantee on it. Well, let me just say. Uh, I put Tokyo Drift third amongst all of them. So that kind of tells you how much I love My it. ride. <laughs> Bama boy. Oh. <laughs> Han, what do you drift for? Okay, enough Fast and Furious quotes. Um, 
they're already gone was my quote. I just I was thinking like marketing wise, like I don't know if it's a strong tagline, but I was thinking like if you're looking at a poster and you're looking through all of it and it's gone in 60 seconds, if the tagline's at the bottom and it says they're already gone, I'm like, that'd be kind of like a cool thing. Like if you're going through the whole thing and by the time you hit the end of the poster, they're already gone. But yeah, my other my my runner up was drive it because you stole it. But I just I, I wasn't super happy with it. Instead of drive it like you stole it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't it's it wasn't solid. very good. That's, that's a good seven out of ten. Uh but the other two official taglines for this movie were cut to the chase and lock your car or it might be dot 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 gone in sixty seconds. Yeah, but also, I mean they, uh, I was gonna say most of, of the cars, cars were already <laughs> locked. <laughs> it makes no sense. All right. With that, let's jump into some Blue Book. So I'm going to give you the sticker price, the estimated cost of this movie. I want you to tell me what you thought it made gross U.S. and Canada and what you thought it made box office worldwide. This movie came in at $90 million estimated. What do you think it brought U.S. and Canada domestically? Box office. I'll say two hundred and one million. You're off by a hundred million. It only made a hundred and one. Hundred and one million. I mm. cannot believe this movie did not make more. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why uh, they just went with they, they retooled with the Fast and the Furious instead of trying to stay in this universe. I thought it was a bigger hit than that. Uh, do you want to guess what it made worldwide? $201 million. <laughs> Close. $237 million. So it, uh, it did actually better in the foreign markets than it did in the U.S. and Canada. Which is bizarre to me because we, the, we, we hadn't reached the stage yet we were going to pander to you know Chinese audiences or anything. So it, uh, that surprises me. Yep. I, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I'm very surprised. But I, maybe it is one of those, like, people saw it and then they saw that there was something there and then retooled it for you, know, like, Ocean's Eleven and your Fast and Furiouses and stuff like that. So, uh, do you have a time capsule for us this week? Uh, yes, I do. So, you mentioned that, uh, through your research, you discovered this was a remake. Um, the original was done by a gentleman named H.B. Halicki. Did you look into him at all? I did not. I realized, I believe he was the writer, possibly director, and star of the original. <laughs> Correct. He wrote, directed, produced, and starred in the film in 1974. Uh, just a little interesting bit. There was no official script from the movie apart from a few pages of outlining main dialogue sequences. Um, Halicki supplied most of the cars and used repeated footage of the same vehicles and shot and shots of public accidents to increase the footage. Um, but <laughs> it wouldn't be a time capsule if I didn't bring us down to a somber tone. Uh, on August 20th, 1989, while filming the sequel 
to Gone in 60 Seconds. Uh, in Buffalo, New York, Halicki was preparing for the most dramatic stunt sequence in the film, during which a 160-foot-tall water tower was supposed to topple to the ground. Uh, but a cable attached to the tower snapped unexpectedly, and it sheared off a telephone pole, which fell on Halicki, killing him instantly. Wow. Yep. You sure it was instant? I hope so, Brett. I... I sure do hope so. I just wasn't sure if he was gone in 60 seconds. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done. I was, I was holding back the laugh. Uh, but if you want another interesting aside, uh, his wife, who also starred in the first Gone in 60 Seconds, uh, following his death, later went on to date her third cousin by the name of Robert Kardashian. And oh, my God. Also, Brett, did you know that Robert Kardashian was a co-founder of Movie Tunes? <laughs> the shit that played in Tinseltown between movies that we heard a hundred million times. That was co-founded by Robert Kardashian. So, yeah, that's that's a six degrees of separation. I didn't need. There you go. All because it's that should not make light of that. All because a telephone pole <laughs> uh, killed her husband. So, yeah, there you go. That's my time capsule for the week. Hmm. Well, thank you for that, Travis. Uh, I kind of knowing how how the movie was, but I kind of want to watch the original God at sixty seconds just to see what exactly was made. Yeah. Oh, I'll never watch it unless you make me, Brett. Yeah, I won't make you. I don't want to review that. Um. All right. So I think that brings us to our chop shops. Uh, I believe this week... Are you ready to do some Chop Shop? Let's ride. All right. So, this week I got horror. You got Oscar bait? Oscar bait, yes, sir. Oscar bait. All right. Uh, who do you want to, to start us off? Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to go first. Um, just because it's, it's a little bit lengthy and, uh, you know, we're recording at 1020 at night. So, you know, your man gets a little sleepy. So, I want to make sure I can bring the energy uh, for the one scene mm -hmm. that I wrote for my, uh, my Oscar bait. Okay, got it. Yep. I mean, I'll probably recut this so you come after me, but that's fine. <laughs> I, I hope you do, Brett. I hope you do. <laughs> um, so, as you said, I got Oscar bait this week. Um, not only did I give a few, hey, what inspired this chop shop, I also came up with a tagline this week for my chop shop. What? Right? Okay. Yeah. I'm excited. So... My three influences on this movie are Out of the Furnace, uh, Rain Man, and Con Air. Have you are seen those influences, or did you just make those three movies together? You know what, Brett? You you ruined my chop shot before with the OC. <laughs> is this just the new? Is this the new theme? I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm you sorry. I'm sorry. I'll just all, bitch. This is the problem. What happens when you go first? All right. I, I get excited. I want to participate. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's the scene that I 
wrote? Is it just directly pulled from one of the three movies? It might be, Brett. We'll see. Uh, All right, the, let's do this. The tagline of the movie, by the way, uh, and I think I think you'll like this because we touched on how the family drama could have been played up a little bit more. The tagline will be Sins of the Brother. Okay. Uh, so Memphis and Kip Rains are 22 and 16, respectively. Uh, the pair grew up in a small California town with their single drug-addicted mother. So there's your first little Oscar bait touch. You got to have a drug-addicted parent. Uh, Memphis, single parent. Single parent. Dad's already dead. Dad's yep. already dead. Yep. <laughs> uh, Memphis left home at 18, and now at 22 is one of the youngest Army Rangers in history. So... As soon as he turned 18, he bounced and uh, went into the military. Brett's laughing right now. I'm not sure why. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, okay. <clears throat> Kip, uh, once uh, Memphis is back in town, Kip tries to get Memphis to join him at a party, jokingly telling him that he needs to get some pussy and enjoy his time home. Memphis, seemingly changed by his multiple tours of duty, declines. So we're going to go ahead and give hints of PTSD, Brett, because, again, this is Oscar bait. Mm, okay. Um, so that night, Kip boosts a car from a drug dealer that's been supplying his mother with drugs. And Kip's plan goes awry, and he's captured by the drug dealer. Uh, but a member of the drug dealer's crew is, is friends with Memphis, and he calls him and says, Hey, your brother's in trouble. You need to get down here. So Memphis sneaks into the crew's hideout uh, to discover Kip being tortured. And uh, as we mentioned, Brett, why is Memphis Rain so good at hand-to-hand -hand combat? Well, in my script, it's because he's an army ranger. Uh, so Memphis intervenes, beating up several of the crew. But Brett, he accidentally kills the drug kingpin. And oh, Kip's no. going to panic as he hears police sirens approaching in the distance. And Memphis assures him that everything's going to be all right. Just follow his instructions and keep quiet. Let Memphis do the talking. Well, Brent, I don't know if you know, based upon the historical document that is Con Air, if you're an army ranger, you know, you have to act at a higher level of discretion because you're a deadly weapon. So even though he was defending his brother, he gets 10 years in prison. Uh, so we're going to skip ahead. And uh, eight years later, Memphis has been released from prison uh, for his manslaughter conviction and returns home. As a convicted felon, his job opportunities are limited, uh, so he finds work at a garage in Bakersfield, working for an enigmatic older man named Otto Hallowell. Of course, Bobby Duvall. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, now 24, uh, Kip is much the same as the character in this film. He's kind of a fuck-up, getting it over his head constantly, uh, and he lives in L.A., uh, Memphis visits his brother uh, to try to kind of dissuade him from continuing down his bad path, letting him know that Otto has agreed to take Kip on there as well. Kip coldly dismisses his brother, stating that he makes six times what Memphis makes at the garage, and Kip counters and asks Memphis if he wants real work for real money, uh, doing the job for Raymond Kalitri. Uh Memphis snaps. <clears throat> Here we go. Uh-oh. This is the scene where maybe it's it's lifted from one of the films. Maybe not. Maybe I just wrote all this. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, you little fucker. As M Memphis says this, as he lifts up his shirt to reveal a large scar on his abdomen. Is this working for a living? Is that real work, huh? Is it working for a living when I carried my best friend's legs under this arm and the rest of him under this arm? I saw a fucking baby with its fucking head cut off. I saw a fucking pile of feet in the middle of the street. I had to clean it up. 
I gave my fucking life for this country. That's not work. Kip is in shock, trying to think of something to say, but before he can, Memphis continues. And what fucking thanks do I get for my little brother when I get home? Eight more fucking lost years, all because your mom's kid through and through. Can't ever do the right goddamn thing. So enjoy your real work. I'm going back to Bakersfield. <laughs> so Memphis departs uh, back to Bakersfield, but... Of course, things are going to go bad with Kip. Um, and Memphis comes back to save his little brother, just just like he does in this movie. Because this is Oscar bait, I wanted to keep it a little more grounded. I thought 50 cars was a little excessive. Uh, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. And what, they would have, what, 24 hours to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, the heist is only going to be five cars. But not only do Memphis and Kip have to steal the cars, they then have to transport them from L.A. to Miami via semi. Uh, Memphis and Otto uh, will drive the truck, uh, so Otto agrees to go in and, and help. Uh, and Kip is going to go along in a separate car to kind of be the spotter. Um, so the movie I want to make is more of a, a buddy slash brother bonding film, like on the road. Um, but we got to have a little action. Um, so With some PTSD and some drugs involved. Yeah, okay. edgy though. Edgy. Edgy. Yeah, edgy. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a, a little tasteful. action. Yeah, you got to have a, a little tasteful. action, too. It's, yeah. Okay. So we're going to have a scene at a truck stop where, you know, they kind of stop along the way to get gas and, and get some snacks. And while uh, Memphis and Otto are in the gas station, uh, a violent robbery happens to occur. Uh, Memphis is going to come out of the restroom first. Um and his instinct is to try to help, but the robbery is going to trigger a memory of, of one of his his tours of duty. And again, that, that PTSD is coming back. Maybe we have quick flashes of him in, in, in the desert, you know, doing whatever atrocity, you know, he sees. Uh, so he freezes up. Otto, shortly after, exits the restroom and he immediately springs into action and thwarts the robbers by, uh, you know, hitting them in the head from behind. Um, the cashier's so grateful, uh, but the trio know, hey, we're we're hauling stolen cars across country. We got to get the fuck out of here. So they bolt. Uh, and this is where Castlebeck is going to come in. Um, we're going to make him a Texas Ranger. You know, they're going from California to Florida. They're driving through Texas. So he's investigating the robbery. Uh, and via security tape, he's able to ID Kip Reigns and also see the car that Kip gets in to, to flee the gas station. Doesn't see the semi, but sees Kip in his vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Castlebeck puts the, the APB out on the vehicle. Uh, back on the road, uh, Otto will reveal he spent two years in Vietnam and correctly deduces that Memphis is suffering from PTSD. Uh, so Bobby Duvall playing like that fatherly figure. Hey, I was a soldier, too. I've seen some shit, too. You, you got to get through it, man. That that sort of vibe. You know, he's the father that Memphis never had. Mm. I mean, that's going to get him nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Hey, it's a slam dunk. Uh, so we're going to have a scene later where the highway patrol attempts to pull over Kip because they ID his car. It's going to force Kip to lead them on a high-speed pursuit and ditch the car. So all this serves as is a way to get Kip into the semi as well. So now we got our three leads in the semi. Uh, You know, Otto, through his conversations with Memphis, is going to help Kip understand his brother better Uh, and realize, you know, his brother's a good man. Um, 
kind of yada, yada, yada to the end. Once in Miami, uh, Kalitri is going to try to double cross the trio, basically take the cars and then kill them. So there's no connection. Nobody can snitch on uh, Kalitri. Uh, much like mm-hmm. this movie, Kesselbeck's going to be dead to rights. Kalitri's about to kill him. And this scene is going to echo the gas station scene. But this time, Memphis is able to overcome it, killing Kalitri. And Castleback will once again let Reigns go. Reigns will tell him where the cars are. And the movie's going to end with Kip asking Otto for a job, stating he wants to be closer to his brother. Credits roll. I like it. No, I think yeah, I think that uh, you hit all the notes, right? You hit all the notes to get that little that little gold statue. And like you like you've done before, you're not necessarily going for best picture always, but I think Bobby mm-hmm. Duvall as the the Vietnam vet father figure, that's got Oscar bait written all over it. Absolutely. I think you're going to nail it with that. So, no, uh, I dig so it. What did you have for horror, sir? Uh so I tried a little different format. We'll see how it works this week. Rather than, than scripting myself out, I just gave myself uh, high-level bullet points. So feel free to interject at any point in the conversation here. Because um, I definitely, I think my middle might be a little clunky. I knew what I wanted, how I wanted it to start and how I wanted it to end, but I couldn't <laughs> quite figure out how to sew those together. So here we go. The movie, instead of opening with that really shitty uh, 60-second timer, it's going to open with a young Memphis Reigns uh, driving his Mustang. All right, The shot's going to be from the passenger side. He's going to be talking uh, to the car about excitement, their life together. You can tell that he has an attachment to the vehicle uh, when all of a sudden uh, he's in a, at, a, at a terrible accident, right? And it's immediately going to cut and roll the beginning credits. I love the beginning credits of this movie, so we're going to stick with what it what it was um, with flower by Moby and showing just kind of, again, the history that he has with his brother and all that. So are you, are you mm-hmm. going to, I'm assuming in your version, the Photoshop is much improved on the pictures. Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh-huh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And a little less sepia, you know, still some, cause it's a flashy bag type, but a little less sepia. Um, so our next scene is Kip and his crew, you know stealing the first car um they pull up after they've stolen the car uh it'll still be very clumsy because kip is still a fuck up they're gonna wind up pulling up to a classic mustang and kip is gonna have some kind of mention about you know living in his brother's shadow to to his crew and that but his you know his brother always had a history with a, a car like the mustang that they're next to uh he attempts to race the mustang uh much like he does in this in the original movie uh, which causes the police chase, but he's going to get away from the police. And what's actually going to get him them discovered is as he's attempting to escape, that same Mustang is going to come out of nowhere and just plow into him right um, outside of their garage. And the police are going to hear it, and that's that's what's going to attract the police. So Kip actually got away, but this this Mustang basically gave him away. Uh, what's his face? The like the the family friend uh has to go and get memphis was atley at you know we go back atley's gonna go back talk to memphis convince memphis to come back so oh i did you establish that memphis survived that crash because for a second i thought you were i I thought you were going with like a, a christine vibe where memphis now his ghost is in the mustang now you're gonna ruin my fucking chop oh, chops. Oh, turnabout is fair Travis? play. Huh? 
Maybe, maybe I didn't. Maybe, maybe I didn't. Uh, so he, this is where we're going to be reintroduced to Memphis, you know, at his go-kart thing. He's he's left that life behind. Um, but Atlee talks him into it uh, to save his brother. So Memphis puts together his crew, um, points out to Eleanor, and it's basically, we avoid the subject. Somebody points out Eleanor and wants to talk about, you know, wait, is that is that a, a GT Mustang? And, and basically, Memphis doesn't really want to talk about it much, right? So the team do the research. We have a nice, you know, montage there. But as they're doing the research, we're going to see a lot of uneasy. There's going to be an uneasiness to it, right? And this mysterious Mustang is going to be, like, in the background of all the shots or pulling up, almost like a, you know, like a Jason. Like, you'll see the shadow of the car, in the foreground or something like that. And this Mustang always seems to be around and, and watching them, right? Uh, as, as just getting, again, prowl in the background. So as the montage, we have another montage that starts with the crew getting several of the cars. Um, and then the movie's going to break into them getting picked off by this Mustang. So we'll have several scenes of them. Like, they're not going to die, but basically this Mustang is is stopping them from stealing these cars, right? How? So, just like running into them and stuff like that, just preventing them. Like this, this Mustang is crazy, right? It's just, it's pursuing them. We're going to have maybe a chase down a long highway or something like that, where this Mustang, like it's not killing anybody, but for whatever reason, they are trying to prevent these cars from being stolen. Right. So. I'm sorry. In my head, I, I see like, I don't know if you've ever had a pet, Brett, where you try to leave, you got to go to work or something. The pet kind of is like blocking the door because they don't want you to leave. I imagine like, you know, they're trying to jimmy the lock on a on a car and the Mustang just slowly creeps up and just kind of just <laughs> nudges them, nudges them away from the car. Maybe, maybe that happens to somebody, right? Um, but at this point, Memphis is out with Sway to get another vehicle and Memphis has to come clean, Right. Because, like, they're getting over the radio, like, they keep being attacked by a Mustang. So, we get a flashback, and it reveals that someone was in the car with Memphis. It was his high school sweetheart. And she, in the, in the accident, he stole a Mustang, and she got in an accident, and they got into an accident. So, when he was talking about their life together, he was actually talking, not to the car, but to her. Um... I'm going to have a call back here. Uh, he talks about how he held her in her arms. And before the like the ambulance could get there, she was gone in 60 seconds. <laughs> so because I couldn't help myself, I had to put in that line. Um, so Memphis decides that ultimately, uh, you know, he can't find Eleanor for whatever reason. And Eleanor was the name of his high school sweetheart, of course. So that's why they always named them. He always names the Mustang Eleanor. So. Memphis is, knows he's not going to be able to find the Mustang because he knows that it's the spirit of his dead girlfriend, high school sweetheart, that is in the vehicle. So he goes to the pier to bargain with Kalitri, right? And Kalitri's like, what? He's like, I'm not going to be able to find the Mustang. We've got you the other 49 cars. So like, I, there has to be something we can do. Kalitri's like, is this some kind of joke? Like, what are you talking about? The car is right there. And Memphis looks at, is going to look outside and there is Eleanor parked outside the junkyard, right? So this is where I'm not quite sure where... Ultimately, Cleetry doesn't honor his word and tries to kill Memphis. Uh, it winds up with him having to fight in the junkyard instead of inside the building. It's going to be out there, and Eleanor is going to wind up running over Raymond Cleetry 
and then she's gonna peel out on him, basically just splattering <laughs> him all over the place and killing him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after Kalitri is dead, the must the door, the driver's side door is just gonna open, right, inviting Memphis in. So Memphis is gonna go. He's gonna sit down in the driver's seat, and Eleanor is gonna start driving, and then suddenly his high school sweetheart is going to appear in the driver in the passenger seat beside him he's gonna get and some this is gonna get exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh this gives them an opportunity uh to to find closure for the whole situation um and eleanor afterward winds up fading and the car goes idle so basically she's no longer driving the car at the movie ends once again at the barbecue, and when everybody asks what happened, Memphis is just going to look back at the vehicle, the Mustang, because he now has it. And I couldn't come up with a good line for him to say for the movie to end on. But that was that was my how I was going to turn this into horror. Essentially, he is haunted by the ghost of his high school sweetheart, who is essentially possessing. He's had multiple run-ins with the same Mustang, and it just seems to repair itself and haunt him through his through whatever he, he whatever he's doing. I, uh, <laughs> I I hope I didn't hurt your chop shop because, you know, I, I found it absolutely hilarious. I'm hoping that this is in your vision. Is this more of a, a little bit more of a campy horror film? This is not your like, oh, yes, no, no, this horror. is, yeah. yeah, no, this is no super campy. <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long time, Brett. I, the fact that you weren't going for comedy, but I think that was by far the most hilarious chop shop we've ever had. So maybe an unintentional comedy masterpiece on your part. I guess my only question is why is the why is the girlfriend trying to prevent them from stealing the cars initially? I don't to, to be a distraction because Memphis like she knows it's part of the crew and like she's trying to stop Memphis because they need to like find closure so like she's just it's that typical ghost bullshit right where like the ghost it's like not trying to hurt ghost, you it's just where, yeah, yeah it's just it's just fucking with you because it's like we need to talk and you're avoiding me like it's just that typical ghost shit you know yeah instead of carving shit into your arm this ghost just you know nudges you at five miles an hour when you're about to make a bad decision exactly <laughs> oh god you know? that was oh that was wonderful brett Oh, <sighs> uh, I think that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, final assessments for God in 60 seconds. Mr. Santana, what are your thoughts? I know I use this way too much, um, but this is the absolute perfect example of like a Saturday afternoon basic cable movie. Um, <laughs> because... It, I wouldn't say I wouldn't recommend just sitting down and watching this intently uh, because it's going to it's going to leave it's going to leave you lacking. But there are so many fun individual scenes that don't necessarily have to build off the scene before or build to the next scene that if you're doing laundry or you're doing dishes, you know, doing Saturday afternoon chores and and you want to pop this on. Uh, you can't go wrong. Even when you're not paying attention, you're going to hear a banging ass soundtrack throughout the movie uh, that'll probably kind of keep you 
coming back and paying attention to the movie. Uh, again, like I said in the open, I think this leads to way superior films. You know, most of the Fast franchise, all of the Oceans franchise. Uh, and if you want to go before the stuff that built to this, I, I would say watch The Rock, watch Con Air. Uh, but this is a solid, fun watch. Um, you know, if you're hosting a party and you just want to throw a background movie on, I know you, you think that's a dumb idea, Brett, but it's not a bad <laughs> one to pick if you're going to do that. So I like it. I don't love it. Soundtrack is 10 out of 10. So solid recommend from me. Yep, I think I've all... I, I, I think you said it perfectly. I, I can't add really anything to it. I don't think I really want to. I think that sums it up. It's a perfect background movie, whether it's party, laundry, whatever it is. It's It'll be a fun thing to kind of just catch glimpses of as it's watching, but there's definitely better things if you're going to if you're gonna have a, a dedicated movie night. So, Absolutely. Uh, if you don't have anything else, I, I did want to give you like a quick kind of pro tip type situation. Uh, I don't know if you've tried yeah. it, but what I like to do is I like to sit on my hand. <laughs> I'll sit on it for like 15, 20 minutes until it goes numb. Uh, and then I'll jerk off. I call it the stranger. Is that is that the the originating? Because I've heard the stranger, and I'm, all I can think was like, is this where it came from? Is this like the like where? It, what am I trying to say? Like the beginning of the stranger, the, was or was the, this the a origin callback? of the stranger? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Origin is this the origin of the stranger, or is this a callback to another joke from something else? Because I'm like, I'm like, I can't imagine it happened much sooner than this. But like, I laugh again. That's why I'm saying about this movie. I'm like, I think it's a fun movie because stuff like that is constantly happening. Yeah, I, I know that like a few years later, it was in Chappelle's show. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, I wondered that myself. I haven't done the deep dive to try to figure out if this was the first use, but it was a, a great way to set up the the kind of juvenile nature of the, the younger crew here. It's definitely one of those things I could see whoever wrote the screenplay was like, they had a friend in high school who did that and called it The Stranger, and then this was just like, oh, this is an inside joke, and then it became a much bigger thing. The yeah, other I, thing I want... <laughs> The only thing I wanted to ask about this movie was, did Angelina Jolie have dreadlocks or did she not have dreadlocks? Was her hair just kind of twist? I could not, like, I couldn't tell if it was, like, a wig or scene to scene. Like, but I'm like, sometimes, like, oh, it's clearly dreadlocks. And then other scenes, I'm like, well, no, maybe it's just kind of, like, twisted in weird ways. Like, I don't, what the fuck is her hair? My memory was she definitely had dreadlocks, but I, I'm going to say no, I, which I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad they did not give her dreadlocks. Yeah, it's just a... Uh... Kind of like a hippie, twisted aesthetic. But yeah, I, I wouldn't throw him in the dreadlock category. Yeah, okay. I agree. That was... Kate tried to say, does she have dreadlocks? I'm like, I don't think those are dreadlocks. Like, there's some scenes in certain lighting where I'm like, mm, maybe, but I'm like, overall, I don't, I don't think they're dreadlocks. You know what they are, though, Brett? Much like most of this movie, they are 2000 as fuck. Yes, they are. <laughs> Uh, alrighty, sir. With that, a uh, little tease. Next week will be our conclusion to the Engine Power trilogy with Vanishing Point. I am very much looking forward to hearing what Travis's opinions of that are because I do. I think it. I think it predates. I think it's pre Jaws. Yeah, seventy one. So, I believe Jaws was seventy four. Yeah, so it, it's pre Jaws. So who knows what we're gonna walk away with that. 
Yeah, well, my hand is sufficiently numb, so I'm going to go now, Brett. <laughs> Bye. I'm glad you told me uh, about your little nose hair issue, Brett, because if you didn't, I would have thought Brett just did some cocaine before he got on because he is playing with his nose quite a bit. Well, I, I clap so hard that my hands now kind of tingle, so I should probably <laughs> dial it back on the uh, the synchronization clap. <laughs> I don't know. I liked it. You know, it gives it gets me invigorated. So. Excuse me. Uh, let me just find it. You're saying your time capsule oh, is buried? There, yeah, I just dug it up. Stereo. Good lord, I'm gonna redo that. Okay. I was like, what the fuck? As you Why scratch your nose. Yeah. <laughs>